The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today on Crawl Call, writer and self-taught artist Christopher Shy is here to talk about the ever-growing popularity of graphic novels. Then, Life in Pieces joins the CBS lineup this fall, and we've got one of the co-stars of the comedy series, Riley Bodenstab. Plus, we'll learn why Anne D. McGee is a recipient of the Eleanor Roosevelt Humanitarian Award. That's what's coming up today on the season premiere of Crawl Call. I'm back. Welcome to the second season premiere of Kroll Call. I'm your host, Dan Kroll. Actually, to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure what season this is. The show started under another name, Soap Central Live, as a lot of you know, back in 2010. So 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. This could be the sixth season, maybe, sort of, unless you're like the reality series that do two shows in a calendar year, then that would make this season 12. That actually sounds more impressive. But I don't know what season this really is. But what I do know is that I am really glad to be back here after a few weeks off. It was weird having time off. I'm rusty and I've had brown soda today. So I've got energy and I'm zipping around. This could be a very interesting show. But what have you been up to during our time off? How was your summer? Tell me all the good stuff that you've been doing. Tweet me at Kroll Call Show or at Dan J. Kroll. Let me know what you've been up to. And also, please, please, please remember to feel free to tweet along on either of those accounts, either Kroll Call Show or Dan J. Kroll or both. During the show, you can ask your questions. You can make comments about what we're talking about. Everything else that social media is good for. Just have fun with it and enjoy the show. For me, in case you're wondering what I have been up to during the off time, you may have heard that I have a new pet rabbit who miraculously showed up at my garage door here in the city. He is actually hopping around here somewhere in the studio at the moment. So if I go radio silent, it's probably because he chewed a cord and ate the internet. Yes, the entire internet, he ate all of it. So hopefully uh, I'll keep an eye on him and that won't happen. Uh, Let's see what else is going on. Here in Philadelphia, we're getting ready for the arrival of the Pope. So next week's show will more than likely be broadcast from some sort of secret lair in an undisclosed location while I flee town to avoid avoid the hordes of people who are coming to see the Pope. I'm sure that and a lot of other things make me a terrible, horrible Catholic, but... You know what? What can I do? That's just just what's going to happen. I do promise, though, that next week's show, wherever I'm broadcasting from, is going to be a lot of fun because we're going to be previewing the new fall TV season. TV Line's Kim Roots will be here. Also, Cynthia James is going to be back to talk about something called mindfulness. It's sort of a new buzzword, but it's actually a very tried and true practice. And we'll have more on that next week. 
but let's focus on the present. Let's focus on what is coming up this week, because later in the show, I had a chance to chat with Riley Bowden-Stab during our summer break. Riley will be appearing in the new CBO series, Life in Pieces. We'll talk about that then. Anne McGee of Miracle Flights for Kids will join us. You may remember we talked about that incredibly worthwhile organization earlier in the year. We're going to get some more information about that today. But first... Grab your colored pencils, your Adobe Creative Suites, or whatever it is that you use for your creative expression, because my first guest is a first for our second season, or any season for that matter. Christopher Shai is, by any definition, an artist. There's a lot to talk about. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. He is here. So, Christopher, welcome to the show. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? How are you on this uh, Friday, sort of the middle to the end of September? The year is going by, Christopher. Yeah, it's going by really fast. Well, we're doing pretty good here. We've had some storms that we're rolling through, but um, I think we talked before that I hope we don't get interrupted in the middle of the interview. Um, But uh, as long as the weather holds, everything's been pretty good. It's been a really busy year um, as far as the graphic novels that we've been working on, but we're holding up. Oh, the Pope is coming to Philly, so maybe he can pull in a thing here to keep the weather fine for at least at least for this interview. Let's start off with something relatively simple. How would you describe yourself to the folks who are out there listening? Um, well, I think it's it's pretty simple. I'm just a I'm just an illustrator um, by trade. I think that's probably the best way to describe it because whenever anyone some someone might ask me if I'm an artist, I always say, "Well, that's that's too broad." So I do comic books, graphic novels as my day job, and then I do concept art um, and creature design for feature films, um, and then I do a lot of storyboarding. So basically, those two areas are our forte, um, and it's, you know we do a lot of movie posters. Sometimes we do miniatures. We we kind of do a little bit of everything at Studio Ronan. I was reading your bio, and it said that you were self-taught in terms of all of the artistic things that you do, that's sort of impressive. I can relate to that because all of the tech stuff that I do is, is self-taught. But I have to be honest, I wish <coughs> I had more in the way of, of artistic skills. And to be able to teach yourself, how did that happen? I mean, that, it, it sounds really hard. Well, you know, that, that's kind of an interesting thing. I always assumed everybody was. Um, hmm. You know, I mean, I just kind of assumed growing up in Kentucky that you know, when you when you first learned to draw, that it was just a matter of sitting down and practicing until you got good enough to be a professional. And and certainly, I've run into that a couple times where um, not having gone to college um, because you know I mean, they didn't teach comic books back in the in the eighties and nineties, and they didn't teach game design or concept design. I mean, there were probably a few schools that were geared towards doing it for the for the film industry, but. Recently, I was I was asked um, because I had done a, a series of lectures at a university if I would consider teaching a, an accredited class, and I said, "Yeah, I would definitely be interested." And they asked me if I had a college degree, and I said, "No, at, at 43, I don't have a college degree. I've, I've worked on half a dozen feature films and, and 22 books." And they said, "Well, you're not qualified to teach the class." And I asked them, "I said, well, did you did you think that there there was a class in a university back in the?" in the 80s and 90s that would have taught this? And they said, probably not. And I said, well, then how the hell could you could possibly have a degree in it if it didn't exist before we built it? So I just kind of always assumed that everybody taught themselves from the very beginning. Um, and I know now you can actually go to school for it, but I don't think that there would have been anything other than life drawing back when I was a kid that would have would have helped with this present career trajectory. 
I am going to tweet out on our Kroll Call Show Twitter account the extent of my artistic talent. I can draw a stick figure chicken. I'm quite proud of it. But that being said, for you, Christopher, do you remember the first thing? Uh, you, you mentioned the fact that, you know, you always thought that this is something that everyone could do. What was the first thing or, or thinking back, one of the first things that you remember being able to put together or drawing and saying, this is really good? Oh, uh, well, I, I mean, as far as thinking it was really good was <laughs> probably <laughs> on the um, the ground of a bowling alley in Kentucky. For some reason, I was obsessed with drawing the, the poster from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And okay. I can remember vividly drawing that poster over and over and over again on small square sheets of paper. I'm not sure I even thought about whether I wanted to be an artist, but for some reason I was very, very happy with the result and kept drawing it over and over again. Do, 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 do. Uh, now, I'm reading, again, these are the things that I think for a lot of people who are talking, they can relate to, uh, I mean, going back, this is probably dating myself, but, you know, the comics that they used to get in the bazooka or old school comic books that, I mean, they've come a long way. I want to talk a little bit about something in your bio that talks about exploring a fusion of canvas and digital art. For folks who are listening first, what is digital art? Well, that's a, that, that's a pretty big question. For me, it's just another tool. Um, you know, I think that the simplest way of looking at it is most people who do digital art just paint digitally. Um, and they mostly use Photoshop. There's a few other programs out there that people are starting to use, but Photoshop is pretty much the standard. Um, and it's really not that much different from actual painting. Uh, for, for those out there who paint both traditional and digital, they kind of recognize that it's just really a, a different tool. And when we started out, you couldn't get anybody to accept any work that was even touched by the computer. Um, I think in a lot of ways they thought it was more photo collage or... Um, a more of a Dave McKean kind of process, which, you know, most of his stuff was actually done with photography and not Photoshop, but it had that kind of feel to it. Today, it's kind of an industry standard that no one in their right mind would be sending the original artwork to the studio or would paint it one time um, without scanning it in first to, to have the ability to, to make minor changes. It's, it's become the industry standard to, to use Photoshop to do that kind of stuff. So that's kind of the way I look at it is, it's, these days, it's not so much a fusion as it is the way everybody does it, which is you might sketch it, you might paint it to a certain extent, then you scan it in, take it into Photoshop, and do your finishes and your revisions according to the client's wishes. Now, now that we've got that, we've got a little bit of the background. We've talked about you know, your interest in, in developing in all of these things that are artistic. How did you go from someone who is just sitting around on the bowling alley and, and drawing to co-founding Ronin Arts, Artemis Publishing, Black Watch Comics. I mean, this is, to me, it, it sounds, it's, it's a familiar process. It's something that I've done from, you know, coding in the background and turning into a business. How did it happen for you? What was the path? How did this become the reality? Well, uh, well, it wasn't a straight line, obviously. Um, well, you know, as far as, as founding the companies, I think that the, the first thing, and I think this is something I've said before, was that um, growing up in the comic book industry and going to some of the first conventions when I was really young, I was painfully aware that um, to be an artist, at least in this country, it was not something that you, you wanted to get old and do. I mean, it, it, going to the comic book conventions, there were a lot of people that I was, I was shocked to see 
these artists that I had admired when I was a kid not being able to get work. And when I got into my 20s, I really made a solid decision to not really advertise myself, but to advertise a studio, a certain style. Uh, and the theory was is that maybe it would be easier for us to get work at the time because people would have this impression that Studio Ronin was much bigger than what it was, whereas a lot of my friends, when the Internet was first really taking off and people were buying domain names, were really branding themselves. I decided to brand a style of artwork and see if I could shop that around as a company. And eventually it went from being one guy in an apartment to an actual company where we were handling doing multiple graphic novels at once or concept design for film. Um, and then later on, as publishing became cheaper, we were doing graphic novels. We tried to stay away from things like Marvel and DC, not that we didn't like doing covers, but we never did monthlies. We, in other words, we wouldn't be doing 28 pages of Spider-Man. It was just not the kind of graphic novels that we were doing. And, um, and when I was doing my own novels, I just decided that the only way that we could really do the projects that we were passionate about, which was half of it was original content that we were doing, and half of it was things like uh, a biography on Edward Curtis and his time with the Quaquitle Indians in in Canada, uh, called uh, the the Cannibal at the End of the World or the North End of the World is what we ended up titling it. It was a really great graphic novel, but we couldn't get any publishers interested in it. So eventually, we decided to form Black Watch as a way to publish our own graphic novels. And, and we always knew forming a comic book company was the kind of the kiss of death, so we just decided to treat it as our book company arm of Studio Ronin. And it's been pretty successful, especially now that, that Amazon has, has really changed the game with Create Space and your ability to complete a book and, and send it to them and actually have a, a really nice POD, print-on-demand book, available instantly. Uh, just about anybody can do that kind of stuff. So it's, it's always, the short answer is everything I've done has been a, a product of necessity um, from the time, even from the time of, of me looking at my work completely traditional and doing the paintings that I did to one day realizing that I was going to have to make the switch in the mid-90s to doing it digitally as well if I wanted to work in, in, in film. Doing stuff independently, I mean, it gives you the power to sort of put out more of what you would want. I would imagine that the advent of social media and having people uh, people being able to find you on Twitter or Facebook, it makes something that was not necessarily mainstream. Uh, you start to find out that there are more people who had a desire for this. So I would imagine that to a certain extent without social media, it would be a totally different game. Well... Yes and no. I mean, there's, really? there, there, there's a funny thing that says that people like your art until they have to buy it. Um, uh. But what I would say is that in some ways it's made it a lot easier to connect with your audience. In another way, I would say that it's caused the consumption of certain media to completely plummet. In other words, I think that now with a lot of stuff on, uh, available online for free, people are less likely to try to go and actually buy a physical book. Not to say that they wouldn't go and buy, you know, an e-book, uh, but it, it, it's not quite the same as it, it, as it once was. And I'm, I love it. I embraced technology from the very beginning. I mean, Studio Ronin had its first website in 1994. So, I mean, we were, we were pretty quick to jump online and do that. 
but it's changed, you know, it's changed publishing. And I think everybody's had that discussion, you know, is it for the better? And no one really knows. I think it, it will be eventually, but it certainly changed comics. Um, you know, it used to be when you went to the comic book store, everybody was grabbing the monthly. Even, even me, I, I don't pick up monthly comics anymore. I mean, I've always been a, a, a devotee of, of graphic novels and, and collected editions because it seems like the most convenient way to do it. Um, I think now that people can, can catch up and, and kind of binge read um, online, you'll probably see the end of monthly comics probably in the next 10 years. We probably, you know, there'll be a handful of stores that will still do them. I'm looking and, and realizing that because I'm enjoying the conversation, of course, that means we're running out of time faster than I would want to. So let's Always. get to some of the other stuff. There. Everything else that I want to talk about, we'll have you back to talk about. Let's talk about the issue at hand, no pun intended. Talk about I Sleep in Stone. It's the latest book. Tell folks a little bit about it and certainly then how they can get more information. Well, I mean, you can certainly go on Amazon and grab it. I Sleep in Stone, it's up there. Um, you can go over to our Facebook page, Studio Ronin uh, on Facebook or Christopher Shy on Facebook and find it there. Um, or I Sleep in Stone on Facebook. But the, the gist of it is that it's, um, it's an old school 70s Stephen King-like vampire story. Um, it would be the easiest way to connect with it um, in, involving children who are on the run from something that was, was dug up in a, wine, a, a mine from West Virginia that's hunting them down. Um, it, the genesis of the idea was really uh, me kind of sitting around saying, you know, when's the last time I watched a really scary vampire film? And, and kind of, you know, longing for the days when vampires were, were, were really horrific and scary. Um, and we, we hadn't seen too much of that lately. And so I, I sat down and... and, and came up with a tale and worked on it for about five years until I had it to a position where I, I thought it was ready to illustrate. And it's been actually quite, quite successful. We've had a, we've had a few screenwriters, um, some screenwriters who have worked with Peter Straub reach out to us about adapting it into a screenplay. And we're pretty happy about that. And then uh, if I can get off my butt and finish some of this other work we've got in the studio, hopefully I'll have the sequel done uh, by fall of next year. But um, if you want to check it out, like I said, just go to Amazon, I Sleep in Stone, and um, it's, it's up there with a preview so you can take a look at it. Otherwise, any of our Facebook pages, Christopher Shy or I Sleep in Stone or Studio Ronan, there's plenty of info. And, and, and constantly we're putting up artwork for the, for the sequel. So many other things to talk about, but I'm guessing that this is probably the point where I let you get off your butt to do all of these other things, but... I do, no pun intended, but I do want to thank you for taking some time out, Christopher. Uh, like I said, so many other things to talk about. Uh, you know, we'll have you back to talk about Comic-Con, the experiences there, some of your other work. But for now, uh, I do want to thank you for spending some Friday with us here. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm glad the weather kind of held off and we, we didn't end up having the, the, the call broken up by a, a lightning bolt hitting the backyard here. It's, 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 really, it's really hitting hard. But um, thank you very much for having us on. I appreciate it. Take care. Stay away from the lightning. We'll have all of the information for folks out there who missed some of the addresses. We're going to post them on our Twitter feed at Kroll Call Show and, of course, on KrollCall.com. We do have to take a quick break, but we'll be back with my chat with Riley Bodenstab of CBS's Life in Pieces. Stay tuned because Kroll Call will be right back. Hey, soap fans, are you looking for the inside scoop on your favorite daytime drama series? Well, for 20 years now, soap fans have looked no further than SoapCentral.com. 
EverydaySoapCentral.com has comprehensive daily recaps of all the happenings on your favorite soap operas. You can take a peek ahead with the scoop for spoilers and previews or share your thoughts with other soap fans from around the world on our bustling message boards. If you're looking for a little history or just looking to settle a bet with a friend, check out hundreds of character profiles and actor biographies. Now you'll know who slept with who, who's related to who, and of course, who's come back from the dead the most times. Plus, there are exclusive interviews, red carpet coverage of the daytime Emmys, and much, much more. So whether you're watching The Young and the Restless, Days of Our Lives, General Hospital, or The Bold and the Beautiful, or if you're reflecting on some of the soaps that are no longer with us, SoapCentral.com will keep you tuning in tomorrow. Now, let's get back to more of this week's Crawl Call. Welcome back to this week's episode of Kroll Call. As you are probably aware, the new fall television season is upon us. And we're going to be talking about it in greater detail next week on Kroll Call with TV Line's Kim Roots. So mark your calendars for Friday, September 25th at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, right here on Kroll Call. It's going to be our fall TV preview. One of the new shows that's hitting the airwaves on CBS is Life in Pieces. It premieres on Monday, September 21st at 8.30 p.m., right behind the hit comedy The Big Bang Theory on its new night. That's Mondays on CBS. I had a chance to talk to one of the stars of the show, Riley Bodenstab, and we talked during our summer break, and here is what it sounded like. Hey, Riley, how are you? Hey, Dan. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for taking some time out to talk with me today. Yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm doing pretty well, too. I'm excited to be chatting with you. Well, that's always a good way to start an interview. So I'm sure this won't come as any surprise <laughs> to you, but, you know, in order to do a, a, a thorough interview, you have to research and you have to Google and you have to do all sorts of other things. I'm wondering, have you ever Googled yourself? Um, you know, I have, but it's actually been a while because I've been pretty swamped lately. Why is there anything I should be aware of? <laughs> well, you know, some people have more things that come up than others. Yours, the most scandalous thing that I found about you is it says, fun fact, is an American actor. So that's what I've got about you. That's <laughs> not exactly uh, well, anything to worry about, right? No, exactly. That's... Uh, it's pretty crazy right <laughs> so that means that the the burden then is on you what are some fun things about you things that obviously didn't come up in my google search what are some things that everybody needs to know about you needs to know um let's see it's a good it's a great question i really like that thank you the uh you know something i actually haven't really told a ton of people down here is that i, I used to be a snowboarding instructor um growing up so that was kind of a, that's a fun fact i Basically, I was on skis and snowboards before I could walk. So a lot of people down here actually don't know that about me because I'm, you know, growing up in the Northwest, like there's mountains everywhere. But around here, you know, it's, you know, there, there are, there are technically ski resort areas and whatnot, but it's um, not like back home, you know. So, so I want to ask about then, I am someone who has never been on skis. Let's just say I'm in the over 40 demographic, is it too late for me to learn? I'm afraid that I'm going to, you know, go down a hill. I'm going to fall over before I even get on, on the skis. Is it too late to teach this old dog a new trick? 
absolutely not. I think skis is actually a really good way to go because um, the, the thing about snowboarding is you're most likely um, you know, the thing about skis is it's easier to get a bad injury, interestingly enough. And I know that kind of doesn't, that's a little deterring, but not if you're careful and safe, meaning because your feet can kind of go both directions. Theoretically, there's always, always the possibility that they do then go both directions. So there's a lot more knee injuries and things like that. Whereas with snowboards, there's a lot more like broken arms, broken hands and things like that. Now, that being said, I've worked with and you know, seeing a ton of people have learned in that age. And, you know, it, it really comes down to if you're passionate about the mountain and the idea of it and being on the snow and in that scenario. So I just feel like I want to. That's really a lot of it. If not, I'll, uh, you know, I'll have some hot chocolate and, and sit in the ski cabin and watch other people do their thing. Maybe that might be an easier way for <laughs> me to start. So, yeah, you definitely gotta have you definitely gotta have the passion for it. That's for sure. Okay, so another fun fact. Then this one is one that didn't come up on the internet, but it came up. Uh, I saw another interview with you. You were not necessarily always planning to be an actor. Actor, you know, a lot of people I talk to, they've wanted to be an actor since they've popped out onto the planet. Not necessarily the case with you. No, uh, I never really actually thought that was going to be where I was going to go down the path I'd go down at all. I mean, it was really kind of um, dropped in my lap right? when I was in engineering school of all things, you know. At, at the time I got into acting, I was already kind of rethinking the engineering thing. I was debating between communications and architecture and didn't really know what I wanted. And even when I got into acting, I, it still was just kind of a class, but it just kind of kept, I kept getting bumped up and it just kind of kept spiraling and spiraling and spiraling into more and more of a passion for it. And right away, I loved it. But again, now I thought of it as a career. I mean, I was 18, first year in college, and <laughs> really my only year at that college. And uh, it was something that I just fell in love with. So I thought, I actually, <laughs> my uncle was a Navy fighter pilot, Top Gun, and part of me, one of the reasons I was doing engineering was I wanted to go into the Navy and fly jets. So uh, I thought that was like a good kind of degree to have a technical degree. I wasn't loving the engineering though, so I was still thinking about flying jets. So I was trying to figure out what degree I would just get because you, you don't actually have to have a technical degree to fly um, jets. In fact, my uncle was an English major, but you do need a four-year degree. So that was, that was kind of my original game plan, actually. Strangely enough, I haven't really told anybody that. So. No, it's, it's, it's fun to hear that. For me, uh, fun facts that you can find if you Google me. I plan to be a doctor. I was actually in med school before uh, I went in my completely different career. And it was like you, something I didn't know that was possible, found that it was fun, something I liked. So I, I can relate to you on, on that. I think it's, it's kind of fun to have that. It is. Isn't it funny how the world, like, you know, twists and turns and I, I kind of think it always happens a little bit the way it's supposed to do in a way, you know what I mean? It's just like, you know, we always have our plans and, you know, I, I look at this career, this life, especially this business and art and acting. Um, I don't look at it like mold, like clay, like clay molding, you know, if you want to use an analogy, mm -hmm. I look at it kind of like more like stone carving. I think life and things, it's good to go into it with an idea of what you want to kind of shape the thing into. But at the end of the day, like with stone carving, you got to kind of let the stone tell you what it wants to be because it's a stone. It can't, you can only chip and chip and chip, but if you don't follow the lines and the cracks and, you know, the things, then you might end up breaking the whole thing off and then you'll have no, 
you know, you'll have no statue or structure out of it if you just try to force it to be something it can't be. So, you know, I, that's kind of the way I've always looked at it. And, and also just chip it. You have to chip away at that stone, too, when, even when you're not really sure what it's going to be. So... I've never heard it explained that way, but that's actually one of the best analogies I think that I've ever heard. Uh, you know, but I, I completely agree. You never know. You never know what you're gonna what you're gonna get. And you know, I think we have our own opinions sometimes of what we think we should be doing, and you know, whatever the the forces that that people want to call it. You know, some people call it the universe. Uh, the others who are religious call it God. Uh, you know, it, it goes to where it's supposed to go. I think that that's the case. But nothing that we've talked about, whether it's snowboarding, whether it's Navy piloting, whether it's, you know, engineering school, med school, none of that is nearly as crazy as the world of soaps. I'm sure that you now know this. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with the first part of what did you know about soaps before you became part of, of the crazy world of soaps? What were your expectations? What were things that you thought? Um, and then we'll talk about what the reality was after the fact. You know, I didn't really have a lot of expectations getting into it. Um, you know, I heard it was like, very fast paced, but like, but I didn't even hear it that much, you know, that was like something that like, Oh my gosh, be careful or be ready. It's that it's fast. It's just like, Oh yeah, it kind of moves fast and whatever. I'm like, yeah, well, so, so did most films that I've been on indie films. And this and that. So <laughs> I was very, I don't want to say I was not well prepared, but cause I did my homework as an actor, like I was ready with my character and my scene work, but I didn't know what to expect at all. I kind of was coming in very blind. I didn't know anyone that had worked in soaps. I had never really thought I'd be working on a soap one way or the other. And it was a really fun experience. And it was a really, really hard experience. Like soaps are very, very intense um, in a good way. They're very grueling. They're, they're, they're pumping out an episode a day and sometimes more even. And you got to be on point. And, you know, people expect you to be ready to go. And if you can't pull your own weight, you won't be sticking around. And it's what they should be doing because, you know, what? it's a business and they're running a, a business and their business is pumping out an episode a day. And they need people that are ready to go and ready to do that or they'll find someone else that can't. So it forces you to really be like, wow, I got to be on point. I got to be ready and I got to be able to deliver my lines and carry the emotions and the performance and all that. And, you know, and then get up and do it on a whole new episode the next day, potentially. So, yeah, it was a very fascinating experience because it really, really forced me into looking at myself as an actor and looking at the things that I did and go, okay, how do I ramp this up to a extremely pro level? I mean, even, even um, like time time that I've done is like nowhere near as grueling. I mean, it has different elements of, um, you know, different grueling elements. It's just a different machine. It's a different beast. But it, it, that was what was really great about the soap world is I'm glad I've gotten to do that and work in it because it prepared me in a way that I know I won't experience anywhere else because there is nothing else like that. Um, you know, theater's kind of like it, but it's not because you get months and months of rehearsal. Primetime's not because you get, you know, they're shooting maybe on a big day, 20 pages in a day or something like that. But normally it's like sometimes like three to 10. So... It's just, it's a very unique type of filming, and 
I don't think there's any way to be prepared for it. So I hope that kind of answers your question. No, it does. And I'm wondering, did it make you approach things differently with something like a film, with something like primetime, where they have the luxury of being able to maybe do a scene in a couple of takes, you know, redo it if they didn't like it or just for the sake of redoing it. Soaps don't necessarily have the ability to do that. Did it make you approach the way that you uh, perform your acting? You know, sometimes you you realize that this is just going to be the way that it is because I only have one take. Does that give you more pressure? Does that take the pressure off? Does it make you sort of look at at how you're doing things in in a different light? Well, it's way more pressure for when you're in the soap world. So when you get to prime time, it's, the pressure comes off a lot. So there, it definitely made me pro- approach it differently in that I went, okay, I'm still going to kind of give myself that same expectation. So I'm not really like, so that I'm taking, not uh, taking advantage of something negative term, but where I'm, you know, utilizing the extra takes rather than using them to kind of get there. You know gotcha. what I mean? So where I think it's really easy on a film set to be, be you know, before I had done soaps to kind of like, ease into it and even sometimes I still will go back to that depending on the kind of if it's an indie project or whatnot because I do believe that there is something to be said for kind of like I think in film you can kind of overdo it um and it depends on the project meaning I think you can over rehearse something or over work something now I don't agree with that with theater and even certain types of film if you approach it like theater then it's not but you know there's always seems to be kind of that magic take where it just clicks and um, my goal and where I've used the soap work has been to kind of try to ramp that up a little sooner and then maybe get another type of magic take that's just a different thing, you know, or whatnot. But in the, war- in the realm of kind of hitting that reality, when it just kind of clicks, it just kind of clicks and you never know when it's going to come. So you, to a certain extent, and with the soap training, I've learned to get that in there sooner. You know what I mean? Kind of almost do my own rehearsals like I've done a few takes right before I go in on the soap world, like in my, not even in my mind, but even out loud with myself or with a, work, a scene partner or whatnot, just kind of, if they're there and they're willing to do it, great. If they're not, I can kind of run through it in my head and out loud, just like I'm there and I'm doing it. So yeah, I've learned to prepare myself to be kind of like already on that money take in a way, hmm. going right into it. Now, no one's ever perfect, but that's been, that's been very useful and helpful to me. And I think I've gotten very close to it most of the time. So, and, and that's definitely served me well in everything else. I so. think that looking at that, and I apologize in advance for where this segue goes, but it looks like, you know, the <laughs> way that you're talking about the things that you've learned, you've sort of learned life in pieces, which, <laughs> I know, uh, you know, good. this is just the way my mind operates. I I'm love it. really sorry, but life in pieces. No, 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 mine's the same way. <laughs> Uh, life in pieces. My, coming my, my mother would love that. She's good. the same way too. So, you know, every I get groans and people want to. They just look at me. I've had people disown me. I've had people, you know, curse me out on Twitter. That's just the way my mind goes. But for no folks, man, I love shtick. I love shtick. Yeah. Folks who are going to be listening to this and they're like, well, "What is really going on here?" Life in pieces coming to <laughs> CBS this fall. And, you know, I've got to say, you've had the opportunity to, at least with this and in Justified, which is on FX, you've had the opportunity to work with some pretty amazing folks in these shows with Sam Elliott. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have. 
it's been very, very rewarding. I mean, yeah, I mean, Sam Elliott, Betsy Brand, I mean, Timothy Oliphant, I mean, yeah, all these people you can see in the stuff that I've done. You're right, it's been very, I've been very fortunate, so. An embarrassment of riches, perhaps? <laughs> Maybe, perhaps, you know, it's kind of one of those things where I've just kind of had my head down and been kind of rolling through it, so I haven't had a lot of time to, like, put too much thought in it. But it's it's one of those things where I just I you know you don't want to kick the gift horse in the mouth right mm-hmm. now it's working so I'm happy. So with that, I just want to get a little bit of background because I know that uh, you know, folks who listen regularly or folks who are in the know and watch TV they always hear about pilot season they always hear about pilots they always hear about something being ordered from a pilot to series. I want to get your take on that to explain a little bit because I I know that folks maybe have their own ideas of what all of that means so. Can you give a little bit of background of, of how did this go from pilot to where we're at now? What's what's sort of a little bit of the process of that? You know, the interesting thing is, like, as an actor, you're very not involved in the kind of anything other than the shooting elements in a lot of ways, unfortunately, depending on the level. I mean, if you're a star actor and you're an executive producer or this or that, they're, they're obviously going to engage you. But, um, you know, and... and I don't say that to say, oh, I have no idea what's going on, but more just so that, like, you know, take even what I'm saying with a grain of salt, because every film and every project and every um, pilot is its own beast. I do know that about the productions I've done as a producer and from what I've heard about these pilots and even what I gathered being involved in this pilot. Um, and, you know, I ask a lot of questions. So I do, I do know a few of these things, and I can definitely t- kind of share what the, the information I do have on it. But also, reversely, on this specific pilot, you know, it kind of happened very fast for me, and I w- and then reversely, the other things kind of happened fast. So I'm actually kind of excited to find out how some of these things came to be as well. But I, I do know that it was very well received. Um, so what it does is what you know, like you said, for the people that want to kind of know how it all works. I mean, essentially, they shoot a bunch of pilots, right, in pilot season, and the studios um, they screen them, they ha- you know they test them out. They test them themselves, see what they like. You know, they are now doing things in pilots called straight to series. You know, Netflix kind of changed the game in that way, where series will just get picked up and they just start shooting them. So the the nature of the industry is kind of molding and changing constantly now. Um, some they're shooting a pilot, even though they know they're going to go in a series, so they're just doing it at the pilot time, casting it, showing the pilot. You know, even though they're pretty sure that they're going to go. And I think that this one kind of fell somewhere in the middle, in that it was so loved around town. Um, the responses right away before they even started filming were so good. Once they'd filmed, they were getting great responses. So I, I think that this thing, from everything I've gathered, just kind of always was probably going to get picked up. But you never, you never know for sure. I mean, I definitely didn't know, and I was surprised when it happened because you just, you know, you always hear these horror stories, you know, because it was my first pilot that I booked. So, oh wow. like, okay, of course, the first one never goes. Yeah, so. Um, I was very fortunate that the first pilot that I booked also gets picked up. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a wild west once you're in, in pilot season because it's like even the one like that could theoretically then they go, hey, the chemistry wasn't there. But, you know, when the chemistry was there on set, people were talking, okay, this is the next stage. You know, they take it to previews, they take it to all these things, and they decide if they're going to start shooting the whole series or not. So that's the crux of it. I, I actually don't, I wasn't not enough involved in the, post-production and, you know, development of the project enough to really know how that all came to be more than that. So I'm, I'm going to ask questions and find out and learn well, as I get engaged with more with the uh, people involved. So 
I guess all the people really need to know is that they need to set their TV devices, however it is that they watch, whether it's on TV, online, on demand, Mondays at 8.30 p.m., Life in Pieces, it'll be on CBS this fall. But one last thing before I let yep. you go, uh, you know, you had mentioned sort of a bit of you don't know certain things unless you're involved in the production aspect of it. You are involved in some production aspects of something. Credence Entertainment, what can yeah. you tell me about it? Um, cre- what I can tell you about Credence Entertainment is it's a passion project that's turned into much more than that. Hmm. <laughs> in a sense. Uh, you know, it, it's a company of artists for artists. And I, I'm involved in the production side of it, as you said. And what I've been doing is just working with people that I've been connecting with, as a lot of people do in this business, and trying to engage in creating content. I, I'm, I started out behind the camera, so actually, before I got into acting, I was shooting short films, and I started like a small film festival for my middle school when I was at that age. And I've been engaging and loving things, everything to do with film since I was very young. I just never thought about it as a career path originally. So this is kind of just the culmination of that. And I love to get behind the camera sometimes. Now I'm, I'm creating some projects for myself as an actor as well, but also supporting some friends and other projects and creating some things around that. We just shot a 1920s period piece up in Seattle that's um, supposed to take place in France. And we think we pulled it off. We'll see as it, <laughs> we start to screen it and whatnot. We, you know, we're working with the budgets we have, and we're trying to get these things done. We have a, you know, we're actually in the, hopefully in development on a feature that's uh, post-apocalyptic, uh, like Western kind of of sorts. And that was a $100,000 short film that was involved in an awesome project. So the scale for a feature is going to be a lot bigger, so we're trying to raise the money for that. And uh, we got a couple other features we're developing and some web series and this and that. It's just, you know, you've got a lot of time on your hands as an actor in some senses and sometimes not. You know, it goes kind of like zero to 60 kind of instantaneously and back and forth. So I use that extra time to work on films on the other side of the camera. So. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of things that you're working on. So how about this? When all of these other projects sort of come to fruition, when there's more things to talk about, I'd love to have you back on the show so we can talk about those. Maybe we'll have some more fun Googled facts that we can talk about by then. (laughs) Well, that would be fantastic. I really like that as well. Well, thank you so much, Riley. And uh, thanks for putting up with the shtick for the life in pieces and for, you know, bearing with me on... No, please, keep it coming. (laughs) Keep the shtick coming. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right, well, have a good one. You too. So uh, there you have it. You are going to have to put up with my shtick and other shenanigans for many moons to come because, well, Riley Bodenstab said it was okay and to keep it coming. So... If you want, you can send him your messages telling me that he should not have encouraged me. I, on the other hand, am going to encourage all of you to watch Life in Pieces. It airs Mondays on CBS. The big premiere is September 21st. It airs at 8.30 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. Check your local listings for the time and channel in your area. If you are one of the many millions of people who watches The Big Bang Theory... Just know that you need to keep your TV tuned right where it is because Life in Pieces airs after the Big Bang Theory. As for this week's episode of Crow Call, you'll want to keep your device tuned where it is because we're coming back with more of this week's show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Welcome back to this week's episode of Curl Call. All sorts of fun things happen in the commercial. So far, the rabbit hasn't eaten the internet, so stay tuned. Everything should be fine. Only another 15 minutes or so. For those of you out there who are listening, I'm sure you know that every day millions of people or at least hundreds of thousands of people head to any of the airports around the U.S. to get a plane and they fly off to a countless number of destinations. It might be the Swiss Alps for some skiing or some sun and sand in Tahiti or maybe a trip to Orlando to hang out with Mickey or Harry Potter We take hopping on a jet as part of our everyday life. But what about the hundreds and thousands of kids across the country who are ill and need air travel to get proper treatment? But when there are medical bills piling up, I'm sure you can imagine that paying for a plane ticket is kind of hard to do. And that's where Miracle Flights for Kids comes in. I'm pleased to say that we have Anne McGee here today to talk about this organization's amazing services. We've been chatting behind the commercials, but Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. It's so nice to uh, be on the show. Thanks for having me. I am. We're going to be talking about a lot of things, Anne, but I want to start off by saying once folks hear your story, I think that they will probably not be surprised to find out that you started off as a teacher in the public school system. Yeah, I sure did. Um, I taught for about 12 years in a, a suburb outside of Chicago. Um, um, my whole family has always uh, been interested in in children. My mother was, you know, my inspiration in, in terms of thinking about children. And so I, uh, many years ago, um, got a master's degree in um, early childhood education. And uh, that just leads you on to other things. Well, we're going to talk about the other things. Before we get into that, it, you know, people may not want to hear this, but I'm going to ask it because for me, this is a person, more of a personal statement, but I'll turn it into a question. And we're just sort of a few weeks removed from the back to school time. Why is it that in 2015, teachers are still so unappreciated? That's a really good question, you know. Um, and, and I really can't uh, uh, tell you that answer. Um, teachers devote so many hours of their day behind the scenes just preparing for classes and, and the, um, uh, just the heart that goes into it because they're, they're not there, especially I would say in the lower grades. Their heart is uh, with the children. And so it really does take a special type of person to go into teaching and to um, care for the children all day, not only the the reading, writing, and arithmetic, so to speak, but to also be there for them during the day in any capacity that they do need to be there. And, yes, I believe that teachers are are, um, basically unappreciated and um, that we still have a, a long way to go on that, and there's so much work to do, but... You know, maybe this phone call today will help turn people's minds around and begin to appreciate teachers more. 
I hope that it does. And and speaking of that, you know, there may be folks who don't even think about this. They may not think about the fact that there are so many other things that teachers do other than the uh, whatever time school starts now, eight, we'll say eight in the morning to 3 p.m. For you, though, on that same sort of uh, dialogue of becoming aware of things, when did you first become aware of how many children were underserved or in many cases not able to have access to getting essential medical treatment. I know I live in a large city. I'm in Philadelphia. I'm uh, literally a stone's throw away from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It's not really something that comes to mind. I'm, you know, you don't really think about the fact that there are people who live in parts of the country where they can't get that essential medical treatment for their kids. Well, it, it's not only that. You may live um, in a major city next to a children's hospital, but say the, the child in your city has a, a very rare illness and there are no doctors in your children's hospital that are working on their, that illness. And there's only one doctor and that doctor is, you know, a thousand miles away. And you are a low-income parent who can't afford to take that trip. So it does apply to people in major cities as well. You've got to see a specialist. So let's talk about going from being a teacher, being in the public school system, and becoming aware now that there are cases of children who are are not able to get this essential medical care. How did it all go from becoming aware into turning into Miracle Flights for Kids? How did that process come to pass? Well, there was a a gap between the time I was a teacher and the time I started Miracle Flights for Kids. And I did, you know, I did some other things of interest to me uh, in between. And one of the things that was interesting to me was aviation. And so I started getting involved in aviation, light aircraft, flying, um, you know, all of that. And then... um, I started hearing about, it it really started with flying blood because uh, blood has to be stored within um, a few hours of being drawn, and if it's not stored, it's lost. And so I started thinking about that and thinking about the fact that, that, you know, the light aircraft was the perfect answer to picking up blood at, a, at, a, at one site and de- delivering it to storage. And there, I knew a private pilots who were kind of getting involved in that sort of thing. But I also know, and this goes back to my teaching days, that it would take a lot of organizational skills to start putting an organization like that t- together. And I knew that I had those skills. Because when you have 30 little bodies running around in a room, you need to know what everybody's doing (laughs) and where they're at. So I knew I had the skills to put together an organization. And it just kind of uh, all fell into place uh, one day, you know, why don't we put together, you know, this organization, we'll start with the blood, and then we'll start flying, you know, children after that. So it kind of just kind of all evolved. Through, this is an amazing number to me, through June 2015, there have been more than 93,797 miracle flights coordinated. It's been over, big number, 51,788,603 miles flown, and that, according to my little abacus over here, is 2,079 times around the Earth at the equator. 
I don't think you ever could have imagined when thinking about Flying Blood that you would have made such a difference. Well, Dan, it's just as surprising to me because no, I didn't. And so over the years, you're just so focused on your mission and your mission evolves. And actually, we started out as a uh, using private pilots to, who would donate their own aircraft. And, and, of course, those were shorter distance flights as far as we could go. You know, it was maybe 400 miles depending on the aircraft. And so there were inherent things with using private pilots that, that um, I started to realize that were not really fulfilling what my idea of the mission was, which was getting kids anywhere they needed to go, anytime they needed to go, as far as they needed to go. So light aircraft could not go the distance. It could not fly in weather, all kinds of things like that. So over the years, we changed our business model again and decided that we would just start brokering airline tickets and simply hand parents airline tickets. It was safer. Moms weren't afraid because moms don't like light, light aircraft necessarily. <laughs> it was better for the children. And so that's what we do now. We... Um, we hopefully find airlines who will um, assist us with discounted tickets or whatever. And otherwise, you know, we, ra- we raise funds to purchase tickets and hand them to these low-income families so their kids could get the life-saving treatment that they need. Uh, I'm looking, and of course, as is always the case, I said it with our first guest, just when I'm, I'm getting into things, I'm, I'm getting noticed that we're at almost out of time for the segment. So I'm going to get to some of the other questions that I know that people are going to want to hear about. Miracle Flights, uh, I saw on the website that you're seeking a $10,000 grant. How can the audience become involved in this to make this a reality? Well, you have to go on our website and vote for us. And um, then, of course, we have, we're up against other um, organizations. But if you would vote for us and, and we get the most votes, then, you know, um, hopefully we can get that $10,000 and turn that $10,000 into tickets for sick children. We are going to tweet out the link. Everybody out there in the Kroll Call family, please tweet and vote. Uh, long answer for this. Unfortunately, we don't have that much time. I have to ask it, though. Without wading into any sort of politics, it's safe to say, and that the cost of medical care for anyone is really expensive. How do we get to a place where we aren't trying to figure out how to get kids to the doctor? Wow, I don't know. You're always going to have to get kids to the doctor because the children we fly have very specialized problems. I mean, things that you've never heard of. And so I don't, I don't know how you're ever going to get around not getting them there. And that's where we come in. And so we're so happy to be able to provide these free flights, particularly for the low-income families. We are going to make sure that all of that information is out there. I have a quick question as we're running out of time that has absolutely nothing to do with this, but it's, a, it's sort of a, a peek into your mind. And I read in your bio that you've ridden an ostrich. How <laughs> is that possible? Is it like riding a bike and, I mean, you rode an ostrich? That sounds crazy. <laughs> I did. Well, I was in South Africa on vacation, and they have a lot of ostrich farms there. And you can actually, you need a ladder to get on the ostrich, and it is somewhat 
like driving a little car, actually, because you pull on the right wing and it goes to the right, and you pull on the left wing and it goes to the left. And anyway, so it was just an experience I had, and I tell everybody about it because nobody else has had that experience, or at least very few people. So it was just a fun time, and if I ever go back, I'll probably do it again. Thanks for that question, Dan. I had to ask. It was on there. <laughs> Last thing for you, Anne, please let everyone know where they can go to get more information about Miracle Flights for Kids. Okay, that's uh, MiracleFlightsForKids.org. Um, and the information that you can get there is if you have a sick child or know of a sick child and you need to get them to medical treatment, we have all of the information there for that. And also, if you care to help us by sending a donation, there's a, a, a donation page there. And we sure would appreciate the, the help because, as, as you can see, 100,000 flights took an awful lot of money. And there's so many kids out there who need your help. So we sure would appreciate it. Well, Anne, I want to thank you so much for being here. And we're going to do our part to make sure that everyone finds out about this. Dan, you're, you're so great. Thanks so much for letting me um, talk. Absolutely. All right, gang. With that, it means we're out of time for this week's episode. Usually at the end of the show, I thank my guests. I will do that. But first, I want to thank everyone out there who's listening to this is now the 300th episode of the show, starting all the way back a bunch of years ago with Soap Central Live. And for those of you who stuck around or discovered the show when we shuffled things around to become Kroll Call, your support means so much to me and everyone involved here at the show. I also want to thank the folks behind the scenes that make the show possible. Kat, Bren, Randy, John, Matt, Ryan, many more. Too many more to name. I'm getting the blink that we're almost out of time. I do want to thank this week's guests, Christopher Shy, Riley Bodenstab, and Anne McGee. For more information about Christopher's new book or the incredible Miracle Flights for Kids, please visit our website at crawlcall.com. Remember to check out Riley's new series, Life in Pieces, starting Monday on CBS. When you're not checking those things out, please go to crawlcall.com to listen to any of our past episodes. They're there in their entirety, available anytime, on demand, for free at crawlcall.com in the podcast section of iTunes or on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Next week, we're going to be talking about the fall television season. I'm talking fast. We're out of time. Until then, the next time the phone rings, you better pick it up because it could be the curl call. Have a great weekend and a great week. We'll see you back here next time. 